Welcome to The Honest Pour with John Lennart, where we go beyond the bottle to connect you with the people and places that make each wine so unique. Paul Hobbs grew up in the Finger Lakes area of New York. While his family was involved in agriculture, they weren't involved in winemaking at all. In fact, his family had a strict no-alcohol rule. Destined to be a doctor, Hobbs eventually found his way into the world of wine. Today, he makes wines from regions around the globe, focusing on non-interventionalist farming and winemaking practices. He approaches his grape growing scientifically, but with the heart of a farmer. We sat down and talked about his thoughts on grape growing, and of course to taste some delicious wines. This episode of The Honest Pour is sponsored in part by Fooditor.com, bringing you the stories of Chicago's chefs, restaurants, and people who make food all over town. Fooditor.com. Hi, welcome to The Honest Pour. I'm John Lennart. Joining me today is Paul Hobbs. Welcome to the show. Morning, John. I always like to start off my interviews by asking people how they got into the wine business. How did you get in? You grew up in upstate New York, yeah? I did. I grew up, well, I was born in Buffalo, and then um, my family is based in Niagara County, Okay, along so a little shores. bit of wine going on there? Yes, but in our time, we were uh, in the fruit business, and uh, we were teetotalers as well. So, really? Yeah. And, um, but at some moment, my father realized that the family farm, being a commodity business, what we had was basically apples and so on and so forth, selling to producers. Uh, that, that probably wasn't going to carry the family into the future, so he decided that we should start planting vineyards with the hopes that one day maybe we'd build a winery in mm-hmm. New York, which is finally what I'm getting around to 40 years later, 50 years <laughs> later. But yeah, so it was one night my father brought home a tray of Dixie cups and broke the pack that he made with my mother by putting wine on the family table. But it, it, that happened to be a 19, uh, let me think, 62 Chateau Ikem. Oh, yeah, the real wine. And the whole idea was to put wine on the table without, without my radar, or my mother's radar detecting it. And he was quite successful. Really? She thought it was some kind of exotic fruit juice. <laughs> okay. Indeed. But Which it she is. didn't realize it was fermented. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that was uh, really my first introduction to wine. And that led to later that year, this is 1969, 1970, we began to plant some vineyards. But my goal was to become a, a medical doctor. Mm-hmm. And so I came here to the Midwest region. You went to Notre Dame, right? I went to Notre Dame and did my pre-medical studies there. But then my father pushed me to go out to California and say, you know, just furlough the medical thing and give wine a try. Really? So that's kind of, and then there was a professor at Notre Dame as well, Father James McGrath, and the combination of this gentleman who had worked with the Christian brothers at the novitiate under Brother Timothy, so the two of them uh, collaborated <clears throat> to reset my course. <laughs> and that's how I ended up in California. And you went to Davis? Right. I did a, my master's program under Dr. Vernon Singleton, who was a P- Purdue graduate. And uh, I studied uh, American versus French oak extracts, which doesn't <laughs> probably sound that exciting to anyone in the right mind, right? Right, in the right <laughs> mind, yeah. But, you know, that, and I, and I didn't realize how propitious the timing of, of that was for the California wine industry because only in the 60s, mid-60s, when Robert Mondavi built the first, his winery, which mm-hmm. was the first pre-pro or post-prohibition winery, he began introducing, along with just a handful of other wineries, like I think maybe... Um, Hanzel 
in Sonoma County, French, small French oak barrels. And American oak wasn't used at that time only for whiskey. So um, that's how I got my job at Robert Mondavi, knowing something about oak. <laughs> and when was that? Well, the timing, let's see, I graduated from Davis in 77, 78. And so I began with an internship in 77 at Robert Mondavi in 78. I became a full-time employee. In 79, I was appointed to the inaugural team for Opus One, mm -hmm. but I was still an apprentice winemaker. Sure, sure, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, that's sort of the, the time frame. What's going on today? Where, 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 where are you making your wines? Where are you getting your fruit from? Are you growing any of your own fruit? Well, uh, coming from a, a livelihood of farming, we're really now, my older brother runs our family farm, so there's been four generations. But we were, you know, it's not a, it wasn't a very profitable business. And so... Uh, Farming's tough. It, it was tough, yeah. And we, you know, so I grew up kind of poor. We lived in a barn for a period of time, and so on and so forth. So starting a winery is a very capital-intensive business. And so initially, when I started Polyp's Winery in 1991, I had to basically find some capital and the way I did that was a forming a partnership. This is before LLCs. So I formed a limited partnership and got some backing from silent partners. And we raised $300,000, and that's oh. how we got started. Uh, but with that kind of money, you don't build or buy a winery. No, you don't. <laughs> and you don't own you don't vineyards buy either. either right? So no, it wasn't until about... Well, seven years later that I was able to buy property, which is where our winery sits today, in Sebastopol, California. Okay. And uh, we began the planting of our first vineyard, which I named after my great-grandmother, uh, who was from Michigan. And, uh, but she started our family, our homestead in New York, and put the family into the wine business, or into the agricultural business, I should say. So uh, I began planting Pinot Noir there, and why did you select that site? Mainly because this is West County in Sonoma, so it's closer to, it's like we're nine miles inland as a crow flies okay, from, yeah. the, from the coast. And the soils at this particular site, there's two factors, really. The soils had the red iron-rich clays that we associate with high-quality Burgundian Pinot Noirs. <laughs> I'd always been one of the, you know, I'd, I wouldn't say I cut my teeth with Burgundy, more with German wines initially, and then I migrated to, to Burgundy. I worked with Henri Jaillet for a month or so in the winter or in the fall of 1984, and I got to know the soils and so on and so forth of Burgundy. And this place, of all the places I was familiar with in, in um, this part of Sonoma County, had similar soils, not the calcareous or limestone but it had seashells. Mm -hmm. And so I felt that would be very conducive. And the region was just sort of growing. It was more of a Chardonnay region than Pinot Noir. But obviously, over the course of the last 25 years, that's changed considerably. So climatically as well. I mean, we didn't know it at the time. But as you know, that region of California along the coast is the pocket where the tallest, world's tallest trees, the redwoods, yeah. grow. And they depend upon moisture from fog. Roughly, um, from what I understand, more than 40 or 50 percent of the, the moisture they uptake um, is from uh, fog and not just the root system. 
So, and that happens to be a great environment for Pinot Noir. We, we had to look for something, because Pinot Noir being a thin-skinned grape and needed a more mild climate. Yep. And you know California can be pretty dry. So the fog every day washes, you know, is, it solves that problem. And so it gave us maritime, ocean-driven type of climate that in some ways mirrored a continental wet climate that you find in Burgundy. So that all made sense. <laughs> you know, it was just a little when bit out that way. <laughs> <laughs> and that's why we did it. Yeah, I mean, I, I wasn't by any means the first, but among the early pioneers in that region for Pinot Noir. And when, when, you, when you were starting out your own project and you were undergoing that process of seeking out capital, did you know it was Pinot Noir you wanted to do? Well, let's put it this way. <laughs> when I was at Mondavi, it wasn't Pinot Noir. We, we struggled Pinot Noir. It was yeah. Cabernet, right? right? And then I moved over to Simi Winery. So I was at Mondavi from 1978 full-time through 1984, seven-year run. Six years in Opus, that was Cabernet focused. And Simi Winery hired me primarily to author a Cabernet program as well. And they didn't want anything. My boss, Zoma Long, one of the, really the, the most uh, acknowledged, great first female winemakers, very brilliant. Her, her strength was Chardonnay. Right. And she's highly revered for her work there. Uh, not so strong on Cabernet and no interest at all in Pinot Noir. And I worked with Jaillet and so on. Well, I fell in love with Burgundy. And German wines were also high up on my pecking order in terms of what I love. So that was one of the reasons that took me outside the comfort of working for very successful other wine, others to, to go off on my own. I wanted to do something with Pinot Noir. But it wasn't only Pinot Noir. It's just but I wanted to have a hand in Pinot Noir. And that's why I decided to settle in this area of the Russian River, West County, Sonoma. That's not your only property that you're producing wine from. Where else are you producing wines from? Well, uh, in California. In California. In California, uh, we're largely based in Sonoma County, but we're not exclusive to that because, as you know, John, we have Chardonnays. That's all pretty much from West County as well. So we go all the way up to a place called Sea Ranch on the coast in our little town of Annapolis, which is, we're really in the, in the, in the heart of the, the coastal mountains there, in a place called Annapolis, all the way down to the Sebastopol Hills. So that's all Sonoma Coast. Right, it's a huge, we, huge area. Today we have about, yeah, it's, it, it's, it is. It's better to traverse it with a helicopter. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, that gives us huge diversity because it's like all these nooks and crannies, different soil types, climates, and whatnot. We have, I think, today about 12 different vineyards. Most of them are really tiny, but, you know, hidden away here and there. That give Do you a, own all 12? Or? Yeah, okay. we do. So beginning in, in 98, I bought the first property where there was no vineyard on it. And I prefer typically to buy properties that have been unplanted previously and then develop them. Why is that? I like virgin sites uh, from the point of view of their cleanness and what have you. And also then you're given the open palette, if you will, to paint what you want. So this way we plan exactly how we'd like. Do you find that while doing that... Sometimes you struggle with wishing your vines were a little older. <laughs> <laughs> well, that is the rub. And so that's one of the reasons I developed a second brand. 
you could call it, or another wine that was more, you know, to, to, to essentially cross barn is our uh, feeder wine. And initially, you know, we were always buying A triple plus sites, but with young vines before their roots are well established and whatnot, that would take a minimum of six or seven years before yeah. they, before we could put or even think of putting those grapes into the Paul Hobbs program. Sure. And then if it's a new site, you've also got to work out, uh, there's always nuances, you know, trial and error that comes along, and it just takes time to, to get everything in, a, in, in proper alignment. So that's, that was the impetus so, of Cross Barn. And it's, it's a great, I don't know what you could call, but it's like a laboratory. <laughs> you know, we sure. can try things, too. Yeah, right, and, right. And without the fear of failure, you can still make very good wine, maybe not quite at the level of Paul Hobbs, but, and that gave us a certain amount of freedom. But I also make wine in Argentina, France, Spain. We, I have wineries that I own. I set all these pro- projects up as an Opus One style. You get a lot style. of spare time on your hand, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I figured at one time being a medical doctor, I figured the more you practice your craft, sure. Uh, the better you'll get at it. And I would always felt that if I'm going to go to a, a brain surgeon, so, I want to go to one that practices his skill. <laughs> so with, with vineyards and wineries literally all across the globe, how do you handle harvest in the Northern Hemisphere? Where, where are you? Do you spend time in Napa and then have your winemakers at the, in Spain and in, in, in France doing their thing and just staying in touch with them? Or how do you manage all that? Well, it's not tough, too tough for South America because right. they're different time of year. Yeah, they're 180 degrees out of phase, right. so that's that's easier. I, I make all the harvests in South America, sure. but as you have shown, illuminated, yeah. How do you do it when you're? You, we've got I've got three European or your Asian projects with Armenia as well, and so that I use. You know, we we cross train our Argentine winemakers in California. Okay. And they're the ones that looked after, after the harvest because for them, they're out of harvest in right. Argentina, so they go to Europe and look after. It's just one guy. These are all small projects. And he goes to Europe. And we have a, a local regional winemaker, for example, in Galicia, Spain. Uh, we have a, a, a woman there who looks after the wines on a daily basis. And then a gentleman out of our Argentina that goes. And he circulates... Uh, among the three wineries looking after those um, and that works out beautifully are those wineries the size of Paul Hobbs or are they oh no small? they're much smaller <laughs> not that Paul Hobbs is huge by any means but it's uh, these are very small almost a little bit bigger than mom and pop let's okay. say yeah in the US between your two brands how much wine are you making roughly well, I know it varies on the year in, in the US I mean I suppose People, if you're European, you're talking bottles, and if you're an American, I suppose you're talking cases of 12. So we produce about 70,000 cases between Paul Hobbs and Cross Barn. In Argentina, it's about 120,000 cases. Argentina's a big project. And, well, I I mean, Argentina's a different price point as well, so it's a bit broader. We're... We sell in 30 countries around the world. And, um, but these other projects in Europe are 3,000 cases. Oh. We're just getting started. 
And then we have a new vineyard in the Finger Lakes for, dedicated to Riesling. Oh, headed back home, huh? Yeah. <laughs> so finally re realizing my father's dream. And is that wine available yet, the Finger Lakes Riesling, or? Uh, only to the winemakers. <laughs> but, but in about Maybe a year. Maybe some select journalists? Uh, also. <laughs> so yeah. soon. Let, let's, get back, soon. let's get back to California and talk about the wines you're making there. So obviously we talked about Pinot Noir. Yep. And you're making Chardonnay. Well, Chardonnay is kind of where, where I really started. And the, the concept, Pinot Noir came just a little bit later because we had to plant the vineyards and get things up. So when I started in the early 90s, I worked with Larry Hyde, who had been a vigneron uh, working in, in Burgundy. But with Chardonnay, that's, I mean, first of all, I think what I want to say is that the first thing is that this concept of place, a sense of place, was hugely important to me. And so I wanted to make wine as naturally as possible. And we had all the tools at Mondavi and Simi, whatever you want, but I wanted to take as much of the science in that sort of thing out of the process. So that meant we needed, we needed to farm at a very high level with a great deal of respect for the vineyard. So no herbicides, very low pesticide, basically so, an organic as much as possible. And so I found, I had, and as I didn't own vineyards, but Chardonnay really helped, and the reason I'm saying this is because Chardonnay really helped this early stage. And that was my main focus grape, if you will, in the beginning. So I worked with a gentleman that owned the vineyard. His name is Richard Dinner on Sonoma Mountain. And his, he had married into the hotel family, uh, the Swigs, the Swigs who owned the Fairmont Hotel on Knob Hill, for example. But his pride and joy was his little 26-acre vineyard in Sonoma Mountain. And we talked about, I had worked with it at Simi, and was always, every year, uh, uh, with just one other vineyard, some of the best fruit that I, but then I said, I'd like to farm it in a different way. And he was open to that. It was more expensive. We didn't know exactly how it all play out. And I didn't want to add cultured yeast nor did I want to add finding agents or filter the wine. And that was something, and Chardonnay was probably the grape that lent itself to develop this, this new technology of making wine that only a handful of winemakers, it's very high risk. Sure, sure. So it was the medium which I felt best lent itself as a sort of a learning and experimentation. And so there were just a handful of us doing that. I was consulting also to Peter Michael Winery at the time. I was developing wines in Argentina for building a program called Catena and so on and so forth. But uh, at any rate, Chardonnay was sort of the lead variety for Paul Hobbs. Interesting. Still a key variety. Do you still practice that uh, very, I'm going to just use the word non-interventionalist uh, approach to, to all of your wines? More than Even ever. Fermentation, all organic. Yeah. Are you doing biodynamic? Well, you know, I, I always believe that um, best practices are when you embrace all schools of thought and use what's appropriate for the moment. And so I'm not like religiously tied to any singular approach, but I think all approaches offer something and shouldn't 
be shelved just because something may not be appropriate at that given time. So yes, we pay attention to every... Conventional farming, of course, has a bad name because it's been highly... Yeah, everyone thinks Roundup and... Highly yeah. industrialized. So yes, we only work with mined elements. We never... Nothing synthesized, for example. Compost materials. We try to put back what we take out. I mean, if we take out pumice from a vineyard, we try to put that back in, obviously, in the compost form. And every year we do better. I would say we classify our farming approach as sustainable, but sustainable is a really wide yeah, open... It means a lot of things. It's a lot of things, but on the upside of sustainable, because many people think organic means no pesticide. Mm -mm. And oftentimes... So it's really, people are confused, and people really don't understand biodynamic as well. Right, well, yeah, that's a... Because there's a mystical aspect to right. it. But there are really practical aspects, and the most practical is that to be a biodynamic farmer, you have to pay attention. You have to walk your vineyard. You can't just sit in your office no. pounding away at a computer. You've got, and, and that's what it's all about. You've got to get off your duff and go out there <laughs> and walk. And if you do that, I would say that's the, the biggest benefit of biodynamic farming, whether you practice it, all the, the preparations and what have you. Should we take some wine? Let's do it. All right, what's first? Well, we're lucky. I think today we're going we're gonna to do this uh, 2016 Pinot Noir from the Sonoma Coast. And it's primarily from our, our new vineyard, which we acquired roughly four years ago. It's older than that, but we... We bought it already planted, uh, which I mentioned earlier in the, in the podcast, and that's uh, in this little area called Annapolis, about four and a half miles in from the ocean, the second ridge in. And uh, this is an area that is surrounded by redwoods. It's all forested. It was cleared a long time ago, and this is something, by the way, that I'd like to point out that California will no longer allow that to happen, and I think yeah, that's, right. a, that's a good thing. Sure, I mean, sure. Who, but these areas were cleared God knows when, maybe in the 30s, the 40s. Not, not big areas or swaths were cleared for agriculture, not necessarily grapes. Mm -hmm. And this vineyard is roughly um, 40 acres in total, which is a large vineyard for us. But it's a beautiful site because we get the morning fog and it has what we call gold ridge soils. Mm -hmm. uh, beautiful color. It's, it's, got, it's got a richness without being voluptuous, mm -hmm. the color. This would be about mm, 400 feet elevation. 400 feet? Yeah. Okay. And, well, yeah, uh, and just then it's a pretty steep incline when you're just nine miles or so <laughs> off the coast. Yep. This is actually. Closer. This is only four and a half, half that distance. Oh, half the way. Yeah. Wow. Well, beautiful fruit, and it's got that nice kind of fruit earth balance, unlike like maybe a, a Russian River Pinot Noir, which is like all you know, big fruit, yeah. all in your face. This is, I see that Burgundian influence that you're talking about. That's right, John. I think the trees, in some way, have something to do with that. Even the Burgundians have started talking. Well, you know. Being near forested lands, I guess, you know, all of Burgundy was forested at one time as well. They sort of recognize some sort of importance, the synergy between trees <laughs> and vineyards. 
And uh, rather than you know what we call a monolithic planting, right. which they've done in Burgundy, where they just clear cut everything and planted it, here there's just pockets here and there, and then there's a little vineyard. And I think that's, we think, A, that's good for biodiversity. For sure. And uh, obviously, I think the trees in that whole area, the trees are what they really do. Redwoods collect fog, right. and they hold it. And that's why they grow water groups, for you, huh? and that's good for the Pinot Noir. Wow. Yeah, this has got great balance. Um, this wine is about fruit and structure and really lovely. And we fermented it with, uh, with a high, high percentage of whole cluster. You what know does that, that do for it? Well, that, that mainly is like this process we call carbonic maceration. It's intracellular fermentation as well as yeast converting sugar to alcohol. You also have enzymes inside the berry itself that can convert. And so it gives some fresh fruit component and extends or slows down Fermentation, because Pinot Noir otherwise wants to get to the finish line pretty quick. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. How much carbonic did you do? Or, or, it varies or, from vintage to vintage, but the whole, whole cluster, cluster fermentation, uh, and there's the stem inclusion is quite important. In this case, about thirty percent. Okay, just just enough to elevate that fruitiness a little bit. And to give it some of the, we extract something from the stem. Okay. Yeah. And I think that's partly what you're noticing, John. Some of that. Uh, complexity yeah. and tension that you get from the tannins coming from stem. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and the tannins aren't overly so for even for a young wine. This is the current release, I'm assuming. Yes. Yeah, yes. the tannins are nice and in line. This is really beautifully balanced. We like a little bit of graininess, mm -hmm. like in a good photo. Yeah, you have a, a good in texture. a good photo, just right. to have some texture, you got to have something to handle protein, right? Yeah. <laughs> there you go, there you go. What's the next wine? We're going to pour the Nathan Coombs. We haven't talked much about Napa. Oh, you got some Napa, huh? Yes. This is the, the area that was sort of overlooked because it's Coombs down. It was always thought too cool, too close to the bay for, right. Napa, for Cabernet. Yes. This site sits on a collapsed volcano and is pretty easy to see if you look at the uh, geological maps, you can see the outline, it's a caldera, and we're planted right up against the collapsed rim, so their soils are what you would expect of volcanic soils, igneous rock, uh, well-drained, a rolling site, and it gets to the same temperature that you would expect, for example, mid-valley, like Oakville or Rutherford, even but the first. period of heat, so you get that good here, searing heat, but that period of time is shorter. And so it gives a different profile, more color, mm -hmm. uh, because the nights are a bit cooler, not much cooler, but they're cooler longer. And that builds more color. And so it has a different profile. It, its profile also leans more toward a Bordeaux style where you get some herbal notes that's kind of typical in, Cla in Cabernet, and more multidimensional than I would say. But this area is, you know, just became, it's the, now the 16th sub-appellation of Napa right. Valley, the most recent formed in 2011. Sort of where all the new cool kids are making their wine, too. <laughs> <laughs> wow, well this is... 
yeah. rich. So this is the 14 color. Uh huh. Yeah, and you can see it has more of a blackberry, black currant kind of pigmentation, right? There's something really interesting there that I can't quite. I mean, yeah. The fruit's there, but there's something else that's really intriguing. Intrig intriguing on the aroma. I can't quite put my feet. That's what I love about it. So there, I mean, some might call it a little briary note. Some might call it, you know, something earthy. Can, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, a little champignon. <laughs> hmm. Yeah. It has a little bit of all that kind of thing. It's a, you get the, a little bit more fog here than you do up valley, but it's set in, and it's, it's, it's not as cool as people think. That was just a misunderstanding by the, the old timers, I guess. Sure. They, they didn't recognize, they thought, well, that might be too cool. And so they planted Merlot there. And actually, Cabernet does much better than Merlot. It's uh, quite a bit of restraint for Napa Valley Cabernet. Mm. It's not that voluptuous, big thing that Napa cabs often turn into. Which are lovely, like, too. No, no, but those are fine on their own. But this, this is a nice departure from that in that yeah, I guess you, I would say it's a little more like Bordeaux, where it's... It has a little more Cabernet-ness, if you will, because... What do you mean you, when you say that? In my view, true Cabernet has a little of the, what you would call the green element, but mm -hmm. everybody means, thinks that means it's something negative. Right. Um, no, I like that, that kind of... That's what this reminds me of. It's kind of like an 80s Napa cab, where they were still a little bit on the green side, where you'd get that green olive. And Correct. A little black olive, a little green mm -hmm. olive, perhaps. I mean, that's right, right down the, that's a bullseye. I mean, I think there's more dimension to it, and that's why it leans blackberry, because as you, if you, as you know, blackberry also has a touch of greenness to Yep. Or, or herbal notes, floral notes. And I think it's, it's just more dimensioned. Those tannins reach out and kind of shake you around a little with this one. This one needs a slab of red meat, I think. Huh? <laughs> Welcome to volcanic soils. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that's what volcanic soils gives you is that yeah. grippy. So this would be similar to like if you're if you're familiar above Oakville, you have a place called Stagecoach Vineyards mm -hmm. on volcanic sites, or Pritchard Hill. Um, more, it would read more like a mountain vineyard. Not like Diamond Mountain because right. soils are so different, but more like, well, as I mentioned, Pritchard Hill or even a bit of Howell Mountain. It's 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 more yeah. it's more structured. So it's a combination of climate because it's a bit cooler. Uh, when I say cooler, I'm talking about the overall average. But if you look at highs and lows, it just it does get quite warm. Mm -hmm. Believe it or not, we can even see on occasion a bit of raisining if it gets too hot. We have to be mindful of the fact that it's not as cool as you might imagine. Wow. Yeah, and this is a beautifully structured wine, and people are so big on the 12 and 13 and 15 and 16. This 2014 is special wine, and that definitely not to be overlooked. I mean, really delicious. Oh, thank you. Thank you, John. We got one more wine. What is it? We're going to go to France. Okay. Which normally, as you probably are aware that this region is Kaur, and so it's, okay. it's sort of the uh, Romans brought the Malbec grape to the region, and there's uh, also the Malbec grape that's in Argentina came from this region as well. So it's the birth, or consider the, the mother load of 
Malbec. And this wine we call Crocus, La Calcifer. And La Calcifer, or the calcium, the limestone, it literally means an affinity for limestone because these soils are geologically uh, similar to Burgundy. It's one of the reasons I fell in love with the area. Uh, and only years later did my partner, Bertrand Vigoreau, uh, bring out a map of, the, of, of France, a geological map. And the map reveals that the soils are part of the same Jurassic period soils that, hmm. that are Burgundian. So there's no like... Interesting. They're, they're, they were formed during the same period of time. And we always, we know that the grapevine's affinity for limestone because that, obviously that's much of the French terroir. The bit, and you know, Normandy and the, you know, the beaches of Normandy, all that is built on limestone. And so a lot of great sites carry this kind of soil. And also high iron content. So you have red clays, with a, and they're red clays with big chunks of limestone. And this region has a river that flows through it called La Lot. Uh, the Lot River flows into the Garonne, which is at the entrance of Bordeaux, basically, okay. entre de mer, and then empties into the Gironde. And so it's a, it's a fascinating river in that it just doesn't seem to make up its mind which way it wants to go. <laughs> it, it does head east to west, but at the, at all the time it's undulating, it's carved out terraces over the, over the eons. So you on those terraces? We are planted on third and fourth terrace. The fifth terrace is extremely steep, and then you come to a plateau. Okay. And each of these terraces gives something unique. And because of the looping effect of the river, sometimes the river is headed south, sometimes it's going back north, and it's carved out terraces so you can imagine the different exposures. So it's, it's a cornucopia of different types of climatic environment, soils and so on that we get to work in. It's really wonderful, but it's complicated. Mm -hmm. Sounds like it. <laughs> yeah, and the area is, I mean, there's a lot of myth that surrounds the region, but it's drier, and warmer than Bordeaux. Wow. The Dutch drained Bordeaux to make it possible to plant vineyards there, which is not a well-known thing. But obviously, this is more, this is mountainous. This is near the Massif Central. It's the least populated area of France. It's almost like if you go to this region, you feel like you've gone back 400 or 500 years in time. It's a throwback. Wow, there's a, the nose on this wine, something else, it's, <clears throat> all about spice and earth and there's a lot of cheap crappy Malbec out there today you know and it's all this fruit and it tastes of grenadine and pomegranate juice and this is not that this is the other side of the planet from from those wines yeah it's all spice and it's a lot of spice yeah and I love it for its texture but you know it, this area used to make we didn't know if it would be possible to make wines that were approachable because historically the way the wines were made were so astringent that they were literally peel the skin really? off your lips yeah, after like the third sandpaper. Huh? Your lips were in the cup. <laughs> yeah. 
Actually, sandpaper would have probably been a better option. <laughs> this is grippy. It's still grippy. Mm -hmm. Yep. Well, Paul, thank you so much for your time today. Your, your wines are, are delicious. I love that you approach making your wines scientifically, but with the heart of a farmer. <laughs> Thanks so much for your time. Thank you, John. Real pleasure. For John's tasting notes on the wines from this episode, go to www.thehonestpoorpod.com. Make sure you catch every episode by subscribing to The Honest Pour with John Lennart at iTunes, Stitcher, or the Google Play Store. Also, be sure to like us on Facebook at The Honest Pour with John Lennart and follow us on Twitter at The Honest Pour. This has been The Honest Pour with John Lennart. Music by Kevin McLeod. 